Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone. I am here with my friend Charles Isbell. Charles is the Dean and John P. Imlay Jr. Chair at the College of Computing at Georgia Tech. Charles, welcome back to the Twimmel AI Podcast. Thank you very much. I am very happy to be here, and it is nice to see you again. It is great to see you. It is so wonderful to have an opportunity to chat with you. We do not do it often enough. Uh, We were just reminiscing that you joined me here on the show at episode number four. Uh, That was about 440 episodes ago or, or even more interviews ago back in September of 2016. When uh, I was just getting this thing going and thinking, okay, whose arm can I twist in this field of artificial intelligence to get on a call with me for an hour and uh, jibber jabber? And jibber jabber, we did. We had a great time talking about your work in interactive AI. And uh, I'm looking forward to catching up with you. But before we jump into, well, another long rambling discussion, I imagine. I'd love for you to share just a, a brief refresher on your background and what you've been up to in the past four years or so. Oh, what have I been up to in the last four years or so? Well, so I do AI and machine learning. And in particular, I care about interactive machine learning. Uh, as you noted, that's where we worry about building intelligent systems that have to interact with dozens, hundreds, perhaps thousands of other intelligent systems, some of whom might be human. And there's a lot of sort of math that goes into that. There's a lot of Uh, sort of theory, including game theory. There's a lot of effort, energy, engineering that goes into building those kinds of systems. Uh, But it turns out at the center of it is trying to figure out the human experience, how you take advantage of it, how you predict it, how you influence it, and how you make machines better by leveraging what human beings are good at. And there's a lot of interesting stuff there. That's what I spend my research time on. I spend the balance of my professional time uh, on education. Uh, I worry about access uh, and how it is that we can educate as many people as we possibly can from as many backgrounds as we possibly can uh, and allow them to be better uh, to actually manage to get to the places where they want to get to, because I think that's the purpose of higher education. So that's what I try to balance my time between understanding humans as a machine learning person and understanding humans as a person person. And on the education side of things, well, as well as uh AI, you are the, I don't know, creator or driving force, or, or you tell us, but behind Georgia Tech's online master's in computer science, which uh, I think did a ton to make graduate education in CS more accessible, kind of before it was cool or easy or whatever it is now, you know, more popular, certainly. Um, but I still recommend that program because the you know, the quality of what you get relative to the the cost is, you know, remains pretty impressive. Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, the goal, so we have the online master's of science, computer science. We are in our seventh year now, I think officially, we're about to start our eighth in a, in a couple of weeks. We uh, went from zero students in that time to almost 11,000. It is the wow. first online MOOC-based graduate computer science program from, uh, I'll just say, elite uh, university, at least in the the United States. Uh, the goal is to, again, provide access to people who want to pursue an education in computer science or in computing more broadly. We admit everyone we believe who can succeed. So, you know, on campus, we admit maybe 10% of the students. 
for the online version, we admit something north of 60% of the students. And of course, I buried the lead. The cost of the degree, which is exactly the same as the degree that's on campus, is about $6,600 as opposed to the forty-five, dollars $46,000 you would pay typically if you, you came on campus. But same requirements to get in, same requirements to get out, same education, and the goal is to educate as many people as we can. Just to put that in sense of scale, mm-hmm. there are more people in this program than all of the graduate students in the Colleges of Sciences and Engineering at MIT combined. As you know, Georgia Tech's the largest engineering college in the country by quite a bit. The College of Engineering, which has 45% of the faculty at Georgia Tech and 41% of all the students. The College of Computing there, now with 9% of the faculty, has about 40% of the students. And that's almost entirely uh, due to the, the graduate population. So the goal is to be big while maintaining quality and to educate as many people as we as we possibly can and to, to do what we can to help people to do what they want to do without sacrificing quality um, and making certain that people can get out on the other end able to do interesting computing work. And I think it succeeded or at least is succeeding. Nice, nice. And interestingly enough, you just learned that your work with the College of Engineering and the online master's program was featured in an episode of Malcolm Gladwell's podcast, Revisionist History. Tell us a little bit about uh, that and the connection to your work there. So uh, Malcolm Gladwell uh, reached out to me what feels like 20 years ago, but I guess it was just a couple of months and said he wanted to talk to me about something. I mean, everything in 2020 feels like that many years ago. Asked me if I could uh, just chat a little bit with him. And I said, of course. I'm a big fan of his work, big fan of the show. And he said he would tell me the secret of why he was asking me this a little bit uh, a little bit later. Uh, and so he asked me a bunch of questions about OMS, actually, and some work that we're trying to do in Sub-Saharan Africa to, to connect there with uh, universities and some multinationals to, to do some education there. And um, he told me why he was interested. And I, I don't want to spoil it for anyone, but it has to do with his father and his father's uh, interactions at Georgia Tech and how much Georgia Tech has had to change based on how they interacted with him many, many decades ago and how you now have uh, a dean of the College of Computing who happens to be Black. And it's a, I think it's actually quite a touching story. And then I found out this morning that it, he actually released it on Revisionist History when I got texts from people yelling at me for not telling them it was coming. But it's short. It's already shorter than the amount of time we've talked so far. And uh, I actually think the story of his father is quite touching, so I'd recommend it. Oh, that's awesome. That is awesome. So the main thing that we wanted to jump into here at our time together is your recent invited talk at NeurIPS, which is titled, You Can't Escape Hyperparameters and Latent Variables, Machine Learning as a Software Engineering Enterprise. I'll admit I have not had a chance to watch or listen to it yet. Um, I know, I know it's been a crazy, crazy, crazy time, but... I wanted to take an opportunity to chat with you about it. And maybe a good way to to jump in is to have you kind of share an overview of, of the talk. My sense from both reading the title and kind of observing some of the conversation that's been happening on Twitter as a result of the talk is that you have, in a quite skillful way, blended a conversation around what it means to do machine learning in the real world, as well as kind of raised or discussed issues around diversity and inclusion in the field. That's my take. You know, tell us what you had in mind. Okay. By the way, I should tell you just a little bit of 
a prelude that one of the, I got asked to do this. And of course it's an honor to do, and I, I was happy to do it. Uh, and I thought, how am I going to make this work? Giving talks in this environment, the virtual environment has been incredibly painful. I think for everyone, particularly if you want to be able to interact with the audience and they said, well, you're going to record it. You can, it'll, it'll be fine. You can do what you want to do. And I thought, okay, well, if I'm going to record it, I might as well try to do something interesting. And I've got a few months to do it. So if I have a few months and I procrastinate for only three months, that'll give me at least a month to put something together. <laughs> so um, I got with my good friend, Michael Littman, who uh, I've taught a couple of classes with and done some other interesting things with. And we started brainstorming about what we could do. I said, this is what I want to talk about. How can we make this interesting? And we sort of spent months sort of thinking this through. We had a communications team. You know, we did all this uh, to sort of bring something together. And in the end, we decided that the right thing to do was to create a story that would allow a kind of dialogue between people to dive into this really specific and, I think, timely issue around uh, bias uh, in machine learning, both from people who are participating in it, but also in the way that it's being used and deployed in the real world. And so we wanted that to be entertaining because otherwise, what's the point of putting something together? We wanted it to be, it to actually be informative uh, and we wanted it to be technical, but also accessible to people who either don't know about the specific issue or even new to machine learning. And it turned out to be both easier and harder than you could have ever imagined. So we put this thing together um, even in COVID and I think it, I think it came out pretty well. The idea behind it though was the, the, the sort of thrust of it is that, and I say this as a kind of a metaphor by a metaphor and a half, that in machine learning, we tend to focus on the small. We tend to worry about the algorithm. Here's the algorithm that I'm working on. Mm-hmm. I'm going to try to you know, make it solve this particular problem that I think is important. And I'm not going to worry about anything else because that's what I do. I'm the mathematician. I'm the scientist. And that's yeah. very natural thing to do. It's a very natural thing for people to do in all kinds of fields. But machine learning is just too big. It's too important. AI is too big. It's too important. Computing, actually, is just too big and too important for us to pretend that this little thing that we're doing over here is not going to have all these knock-on effects that actually have a real impact on the world. And so we, it's time to grow up. It's time to grow up, right? That if, we're, if we think of ourselves as compiler hackers, people who are trying to solve a very particular language translation problem, we should be thinking of ourselves as software engineers. We should be thinking of ourselves as programming language nerds. That is, people who are building entire systems that will involve all kinds of stakeholders. And we're trying to describe the things that we want to do in a way that is accessible both to us as, as, as experts in machine learning, but also to other people who are experts in the domains where these things are going to be applied. And finally, we have to be ethnographers. We have to really understand the fact that the system that we're building will one day get deployed and will have real impact in the real world, we can no longer afford, either intellectually or ethically, to ignore the fact that we have to build real robust systems. So how do you kind of tell that story, not just from a, you know, it's the right thing to do point of view, but also that if we take it that way, if we treat it that way, if we think about it that way, then it means that we will actually be able to not just solve more interesting problems, but they're technically more interesting things that we could be doing. There are different ways we could be thinking about AI and machine learning that'll lead to intellectually stimulating possibilities and that we've been ignoring those possibilities in an effort to stay over here in the space. And so that's kind of the idea. And it's told as a Christmas carol with ghosts from past, present and future, because of course it is. Uh, and Michael Lippman plays Scrooge because of course he does. There's a line in there where Michael uh, complains that I've cast him as Scrooge and I tell him that he's old enough to be Scrooge, which is kind of a running joke in our lives about how much older he is than I am. Turns out, though, he actually is old enough to be Scrooge. It turns out that he's the same age as Scrooge was uh, in the original sort of Dixonian uh, uh, stuff. Uh, oh, wow. <laughs> I always want to turn it into John Dickerson. Anyway, um, the, um, in, in the original story, 
because it turns out that if you live to your mid fifties, you led a hard life way back when and yeah. uh, looked a lot older. So actually, Scrooge apparently was in his fifties. Totally appropriate. <laughs> I think so. I think so. Michael's lived a hard life, and I think. It's- <laughs> So in there, you, you kind of start with this analogy of compiler hackers to software engineers. I'll unpack that a little bit and what that all means. Yeah. So by the way, when I say compiler hackers, I know there's lots of compiler hackers now who are mad at me, but I, I mean something very specific about that. Right? Yeah. An important thing that, that we do, and I'm just going to pretend I can just describe it as machine translation, right? Where we're worried about solving a particular problem. It's relatively well specified. There's lots of really cool, interesting things going on there. But it's a kind of world where you have defined what it is and you know what the output needs to be and you're worried about all kinds of interesting optimization problems. It's not that it's not interesting, but it's narrow in a good sense, but it's narrow in in sort of its focus. Once you start thinking about systems, you have to start bringing in other things, right? People will talk about system, I'm a software engineer. Oh, so then you do coding. No, a software engineer has to actually understand what specifications are. They have to understand what requirements are. They have to understand where things are coming from. In our case, that's the data, the problem. And they have to understand how the systems are going to be deployed ultimately. That's the models that we produce if you want to think about it in terms of machine learning or the larger systems we produce if you want to think about it in terms of AI. And if you don't gather that entire pipeline, if you don't think through the entire system of which you might want to think of yourself as a small part, then you end up building systems that don't work. Or worse, they work really well at something you didn't intend for them to work at. And they go out in the world and they cause real harm. And that's intellectually dishonest and lazy and uh, it's dangerous. And in a world where these things are being distributed everywhere and they're being used by everyone, we can just no longer afford to do that. And so when I talk about the difference between software engineers and compiler hackers, what I really mean is the difference between working on this interesting problem versus having to deal with what happens when you have to be a part of a much larger system, including large parts of the system that you do not understand, you're not an expert in, but nonetheless have to have in your head as you're trying to build something. You have to work with others. It's not possible to do it by yourself. You have to bring in all these other people, you know, mm-hmm. from before you show up and after you're done. And that's what we have to do. And that's really the kind of conceit. That's really the sort of the, the idea here. And I think that we avoid it. I think, and I, there are good reasons for this, but I, I think that we avoid that reality because it's a lot more work. It feels like doing things we don't, I'm not trained to do, you don't necessarily want to do. But I actually claim that it's uh, it's better. It's actually better and it's actually more interesting. It's just a more interesting set of problems that have the nice side effect of being better for humans as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, mean, I experienced a little bit of dissonance with your analogy living predominantly in kind of the, the tech world, you know, which is dominated by software engineering and software engineers, but is still often characterized by, you know, monoculture, you know, move fast, break things, a disregard for the broader, you know, systemic implications of what they're doing. And in some ways, you're still holding, you're at least using the same term as an ideal that we need to move towards in the MLAI community? Does it apply more maybe in an academic sense? Uh, no, no, I don't think so. I mean, I take your point. I think you're absolutely right. It's very easy to think of yourself as a software engineer and still be unnecessarily narrow in the way you think about the implications of what you're doing. And it's very natural, again, to, to do that. I certainly have been guilty of it, and I suspect that I'll be guilty of it over sometime in the next couple of months. But... <laughs> You know, it's an ideal, right? It's it's aspirational. But actually, more yeah. than being an ideal and being aspirational, if you take it seriously, right, there's two things that you should you can think about. 
One is I'm building a system, and if I build it wrong, bad things happen. So, you know, there's lots of examples of this. There's a book, uh, Set Phasers on Stun, I think it's called. You know, you build a system that is going to deliver radiation for x-rays, and it turns out the UI is terribly built, and you literally kill people. Right. Once that happens, you have to start building systems. You have to start. You have to build a methodology, uh, and you have to take care to think through how the system's really going to be used. Understand the user. You have to really build out and out and out. Mm-hmm. Software engineering is about that. There's lots of things that are about. Lots of systems thinking that are about that. It's, it's hardly limited to computing. But that's a part of what I mean, and that's one thing that you get out of it. But there's a second thing that you get out of it, and this is the sort of thing I think you're talking about that not everybody does, which is. It's not just a matter of, here's the user I imagine, and I'm going to make certain that that user is going to be okay. It will be a nurse in a specific situation and no more. Mm-hmm. The problem, if you take that idea and you apply it to what we're doing in, in machine learning and AI and, and computing in general, it's not a nurse in front of a machine providing a service as a part of doing an x-ray. It is a random person who's one of eight or nine billion people who will have access to this technology and will use it. So... The idea still applies, but now you have to worry about a much broader set of users. You don't get to say, well, these people don't get involved because the system's going to be out there and it's going to be used for all kinds of purposes you haven't necessarily imagined. What that leads to, and I think this is you know sort of the second half of the discussion for me, is it means that you have to involve as many people as possible with as many perspectives as possible and experiences as possible in order to make certain that you're actually going to build these systems that will, in fact, be useful in the world in the way that they're actually going to be used, right? So that means diversity, right? That means bringing in people you wouldn't necessarily bring in or wouldn't necessarily want to think about as your users, bringing in, having them as testers, and more importantly, having them as people who are machine learning experts. I think an easy mistake to make and an easy lesson to draw that I think is the wrong one is, well, you know, it might get used by these people who don't look like me or come from a different background. So I guess I should visit them and figure out what they want and then it'll be okay. No, you have to think of people not just as domain experts outside of what you do. You have to make certain that people from these kinds of backgrounds are also the experts in the machine learning, the AI, the computing, the software engineering, and all the other parts of what we do in the first place to help to design the problem. Someone has to be in the room to say, maybe it's not a good idea to have the robot kill people. Someone has to be in the room to say, that's not, you say you're talking about crime, but you're not talking about crime. You're talking about arrests. And those aren't the same thing. And let me tell you what my experiences have been like. Right? You need people in the room who are technologically savvy, understand as much as you do about whatever problem is you're trying to solve from a kind of AI machine learning computing point of view, uh, but also have had a set of experiences that'll help you to think more broadly about the applicability of what it is you're going to do. And I, I think that that's the part that one can skip around, but without that, we don't actually solve the problem. We just give ourselves one more step of illusion that we are. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I think, a really interesting time to make that point about, you know, needing that alternate perspective in the room. I think the time we're talking about this, you know, recently, Timnit Gebru was resignired. I forget the word that they made up to describe it. <laughs> resignated, resignated from Google research. And I think we're all getting a sense of both how hard it is to be that person in the room and also how hard it is to actually have that person in the room and allow them to fulfill their duty of calling out the potential issues with what you're doing. Take on that? Thoughts on that? That's exactly the right point. So one of the things that the literature is very clear on is that you get better outcomes when you have a diverse set of people in the room. Mm -hmm. 
may not like that, or you may think that's great, but it doesn't matter. The data are the data. You get better outcomes for lots of reasons. But the other thing that the literature tells us that people don't tend to talk about is that those groups are less happy, right? Because maybe it's because they're being challenged. Maybe it's because it's uncomfortable. Maybe it's because, you know, there's more fighting. I, I did, I won't bore you with the details, but I, I did this exercise several years ago with 60 something other people and they had had us divided up into these little groups which they had done on purpose we, we didn't know but they uh, over like a whole year and we were working on these projects together and there were some people in my group i liked and there's people in the group who just got on my nerves in a way i just can't even describe to you i mean i liked them and respected them but man you really have to sit here for 15 more minutes and talk about you know your daughter or whatever i just i don't care i want i want to do this problem and they then brought us together about halfway through this year and they divided up as again, and they divided us up based on personality traits they had decided that we had. And it turned out I got put in this in this particular group of people, and it was the most fun I had had in the six months that we had been doing this. I mean, we were completing each other's sentences. I mean, we were joking. Everyone was laughing. They actually said, "You know, we've been recording you, and you'll notice this is the loudest any of you have been in the six months that we have been doing this. And all the other times you work together, you're much more quiet." And it's because they had put us with people who thought the same way that we did, had the same experience that we did. It was fantastic. It was great. But the different groups they brought it, broke us up in had completely different takes on the problem that had been put before us. We saw the world completely differently. And each of us was worse off for having not had the perspectives of other people who tended to think differently. And I got a lot from that experience. And one of the things I got from that experience is, man, it's easy to surround yourself with people who are like you. And it's so much more fun. And man, it is irritating to surround yourself with people who think very differently uh, from you, but you have to do the latter in order to succeed. And so what we don't do is we don't do the hard work of saying, we're going to bring in these diverse voices and we're going to deal with the fact that it's going to be somewhat less comfortable and we need to create structures and ways in which we can make people both more productive and happier as a part of that. And, and I think that, you know, it's worth it. It's clearly worth it. I mean, I'm not going to say anything specifically about what's going on inside Google. I'm not in there. I don't know what's happening. I've done enough HR stuff and managed enough people to know that there's always 5,000 sides to every story, even if it only involves two people. But it is certainly the case that it is easy to create an environment where everyone is unhappy unintentionally just by bringing people in and not doing the next step of thinking through carefully how you make that work. Mm -hmm. It does raise some questions around how to operationalize or put into practice some of the the things that you're calling for, given the level of discomfort that's created by having the diverse voices in the room and the folks that are willing to say, hey, maybe we shouldn't be doing this or just don't do this. What also needs to be in place so that the organization can take advantage of those voices? I mean, you know, it's, it's hard. If I knew, knew the answer to that, I'd probably be doing something different. But I think <laughs> there's some stuff you can do, right? I mean, you set expectations. I mean, you make spaces, I, I hate to use the phrase safe, but you make spaces safe. You tell people that it's okay for, and by the way, this goes from the top down, right? As a, as a leader in the room, as a manager or a VP or a dean or a chair or a professor, whatever, you have to say it is okay for us to have these difficult discussions and it's going to be okay. We're all going to be friends afterwards and we're going to move forward because we're united by something. There's some goal we're trying to accomplish and this messiness here will get us to a better place and none of it's personal. Um, and if you can get people to buy into that and you're willing to take hits yourself as someone who might be, say, leading the group, then people will do it. And they typically are okay. 
You have to find other ways to keep people talking, though. If you allow people to get upset and to go off in their separate ways and sort of stew in it, things eventually get bad. But if you have meetings, if you have regular things where people get to say out loud what's bothering them, um, and I don't mean this as a kind of let's all hold hands and share our feelings sense, just to hear the things I'm trying to do. Oh, I didn't realize you were trying to do something similar. How might we solve this? You just kind of keep the conversation constantly going. I found that in general, those things work better. But in the end, it's people and people are people and people are going to do what people do and you just have to accept it. But if you can create expectations where people know this is a place where you can speak up. And by the way, the price of you speaking up is that other people will speak up back. But in the end, we're all going to still get to the same place. You can you can usually make that work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. At least that's my experience. Yeah, yeah. So returning to your NeurIPS talk, you, you said you started out with kind of an exploration of the past. What was that? It, it was about software engineering. It was about theory. Yeah. The things that we've done. Um, there's a really nice example in there. Uh, Michael Kearns, many of you will know who Michael Kearns is. Uh, he, he wrote the, uh, the Ethical Algorithm, the co-wrote it, and is a, one of the founders of uh, theoretical machine learning, or at least one of the people who did it in the early days. Um, and a great guy and a very good basketball player and squash player. He's kind of annoyingly good at everything. Anyway, uh, he's a real nice guy. Um, he, he talked about how cybersecurity was like this game, you know, it was just terrible. It's like this, you know, um, I come up with something, someone comes up with something else, and you just kind of never, you never get anywhere until people started defining uh, their terms very carefully, thinking, well, what is, what is it we're actually trying to accomplish? What is it we're actually trying to get right? What is, help us? Def- what, how do you define your terms? And once you put something on sort of stable theoretical and algorithmic grounds, you can actually make progress. Right. And so there's a lesson there combined with what we know about software engineering and and how you can make mistakes if you aren't careful. So you just think about what we've learned from the past. You realize that at the end of the day, clear definitions, methodology and thinking beyond the problem that happens to be immediately in front of you are all necessary um, in order to make significant progress that actually impacts the world. Or at least it seems that way to me. And that's what the past was mostly about. It was also about laying out the arguments against caring about this. Um, The most common one is. Uh, it's not about the algorithm. The, the algorithm isn't biased. The algorithm doesn't have problems. It's just the data. And if we had the right data, everything would be fine. And so therefore, I can pay attention to just the algorithm. But it turns out that doesn't make any sense. First off, it is your problem if your data has problems, and you need to deal with that. Secondly, if you know or believe or are worried that the data you get is not representative of the problem you actually want to solve, the how things are going to be deployed later, then you need to build algorithms that will understand that and will react accordingly. And if you don't do that, then you aren't actually solving the problem you claim to be solving. You're solving a made-up proxy problem that won't actually be as useful. It might get you a paper in NERVS, but it won't have the impact that you purport to want to have. And I, I think that's actually... Uh, a sort of key and important thing to think through. But also, you know, algorithms have bias by definition. I mean, I think it's a different kind of bias from what people mean when they're talking just globally, but they do. And algorithms have hyperparameters and either those hyperparameters can affect what is learned or they can't. They can't, then they're not useful. They don't mean anything. So if they can, then it actually does matter how you set the knobs and you tweak things for your algorithm to get the output that you would like to have. And so you can't avoid that, even though we do. Look, I had someone call me up once um, and ask me about some work I had done in the late 1990s, early 2000s in reinforcement learning. And they said, so what value of lambda did you use uh, or gamma did you use? And I said, oh, um, I think it was 0.7. Why did you use 0.7? Because that was the default in the code that I had. 
right? It wasn't, and it worked. And because it worked, I didn't have to care about finding the right gamma, right? We all do that, right? We, we have all these hyperparameters. They're supposed to mean something. We kind of do whatever it is that works. And that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work out in the world. And that's really easy, easy set of traps to fall into. And it's not a very software engineering view of the world. But it is about overfitting to the problem in front of us. And that's supposed to be something we don't believe in as AI people. Yeah, yeah. And what's your take on kind of where we are and what, where the priorities need to be in terms of defining the common terms and methodologies that you referenced? You know, there have been some initial efforts around, you know, things like model cards and data set spec sheets, that kind of thing. Seems like there's still a long way to go there. Oh, we're, we're very far away, but I mean, that's, that makes it exciting, right? I mean, I would just love to have a definition of fair that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I've had people talk to me about this and it is just, it is amazing to me how you can come up with multiple definitions of fair, all of which seem fair, but lead to completely different outcomes. And just understanding that is in and of itself interesting. I, mean, I think you could spend, you know, there's, there's certainly multiple PhD dissertations just in the question of defining what does it mean to have accomplished some notion of fairness or balance or pick whatever word you want to do, never mind the sort of practice of how you would get this kind of implemented in the real world. And not just English definitions, but mathematically sound definitions of fairness that are very different. We haven't even touched on culturally grounded notions of fairness. Right. Right. We're going to come up with something that makes sense in, I don't know, the United States, but doesn't make sense in some foreign land like Canada. (laughs) They do very weird things. Like they use this thing called the metric system. I don't know. It's very strange people out there in the world. And, you know, you think you're like them, you think you're, or you think you're different from them. And just figuring out how you're going to make these kinds of things work and truly generalize is actually very difficult and very difficult for an individual engineer, scientist, computationalist, whatever you want to call yourself to even imagine. And so to me, and this, you know, you know me, you know me well, and some people will, will joke that this doesn't sound right coming from me, but I mean it, you have to have humility about what you know and what what ability you have to actually predict how something's going to be used in the world. But just coming up with those, those sort of technical and mathematical notions of what it is we're actually trying to do, I mean, that's, that's exciting stuff. And I, I know we've got decades of work to do in that space. Uh, and we haven't even gotten to the part of how you're going to bring the people in to even point out to you that the definitions you're coming up with don't make any sense in their environment or in their world or in their experience. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Are there... Analogies that you've seen in other areas of engineering or software engineering for how these, not necessarily these kinds of challenges, but similar types of challenges have been addressed? Yeah, I mean, so my, you know, my observation, and I'm hardly a, you know, one of the problems with being an expert in one thing is that you realize how much you're not an expert in something else. So this is not my area of expertise, right? But my observation of the way engineering and science kind of develop over time is they're usually forced on you by some major disaster and you overreact to the disaster. And then often good things come out of that and the pendulum swings and it does whatever it does. But, you know, the examples that I always kind of think of in the back of my head are things that happen in, in aerospace, right? Like you can't get a PhD in aerospace without, I mean, all your th- you think about safety constantly, right? It's built into what you do. And that's a good thing, it turns out. I, I was at this, um, oh, I don't know, it was, it was a convening of people about AI at the White House or something. And they brought in these people from these different backgrounds. There were people from um, health and medicine specifically. There were people from, you know, Boeing, you know, the, the airplane people. Uh, and there were people from various forms of academia. There are all these uh, accounting. There are all these people from these different areas. 
And you got these people in a room and they're talking about AI. And it takes you 15 minutes to realize that they're all using the same words and they're using them radically differently. And it's because their context of what's important, like you, you cannot be in the business of building planes without thinking about safety all the time. That's all you, that's the single most important thing, probably, at least that's the way it looked to me. But in medicine, you're worried about privacy. You're worried about, you're also worried about safety, but privacy matters. There's much more wiggle room about what does it mean to be successful or not, you know, chronic versus acute. I mean, all of these things are very different and they're just the problems they're caring about and the way they even think about the world are so so very radically different. So when I look at other fields and, and other experiences, what I get out of it is that they're also very different in the things that matter to them, but they're mostly driven by disasters, things that happen that force them to say, you know, we will do no harm or force them to focus on privacy or focus on safety or focus on this. I just think the world is better if you think about it before the disaster happens. Because if the disaster happens, then you have very little control over what's going to drive your field for the next five or 10 years because other people are going to come in and tell you. Mm -hmm. So the next part of your talk was the present. Tell us mm -hmm. about the present. Well, that is the present. I mean, one of the things about the talk is I realize, you realize halfway through that the past, the present, and the future are all kind of sort of pushing <laughs> together. But the present is where we are, right? The present is the fights about whether yeah. we should care about this at all. Right. It's, you know, there's a lot of good work that's out there, as you said, you know, a lot of proposals about how we think about things like bias, for example. But we're still at the point where we're arguing about whether that's even a problem, not much less whether it's a problem worth considering. Right. Yeah. So, you know, you will recall it was just a few months ago that we had this big blow up on Twitter around Pulse and Style GAN that would turn people of color into people of somewhat less color. There's a picture of me floating around out there that just mm -hmm. deeply me. It started with Obama and it ended with me. That's how I kind of think about it. You know, I just figure Obama, Charles, we're roughly on the same level of importance when it comes to this, at least as far as the algorithm is concerned, because the algorithm turned us both into very different looking white people who look mildly related to some distant cousin of ours. In my case, it gave me blonde hair. It was all very, it's all very disturbing. Um, and so the present that we were in is really an argument about whether we should be worrying about this at all. And, and I think it's I'm personally looking forward to getting past the present and to just agreeing that these are interesting research problems that we should be focusing on. Mm -hmm. So that's the present for you. The present to me should be short because it's where we're living right now and we need to get past it and move on into the future. And the, the future, which is also the present. Yes. <laughs> and it's the past, it turns out. And the past, it turns out. Did you provide any uh, crystal ball uh, insights into the future or more directionally the things that we need to be thinking about? The only, so there are two, there are two parts in the, in the future and one is a bit of a turn. So there's kind of the technical question of the future and those are just sort of laid out. Here are the kinds of places that we could be spending our time thinking about. Here are the interesting problems that we could be doing. Some of them I think are kind of obvious, some are less so. But for me, the real future is long-term and it's less technical. In other words, the point isn't, here's what you should be focusing on algorithmically, or here's the methodology that you should be working on that I'm going to push on you because I think it's the right thing. The future is really creating the set of people who are going to be prepared to lead the conversation, right? So we need to be looking at the people who are 10 years old right now because they're going to be the ones who are going to have to solve this problem in 20 years. So that's about education. That's about getting people in to realizing that this is important in their lives, whether they're going to do AI and machine learning or they're going to do something else, uh, but just to be facile and thinking about things like this uh, so that they can make reasonable decisions. So yeah. to me, the future is both a technical one, and that's interesting, but it'll come on its own. 
But the one that won't come on its own is making certain that more people are engaged in the conversation, that they have the technical background, they understand what computing is, they aren't afraid of taking derivative because someone told them they should be, and that they're a part of that conversation and that they're, in fact, in the room. They're in the room uh, when the conversation happens. And to me, that's actually the hard part of the future. You get enough people in the room, then the technical stuff will come because there's smart people out there trying to solve difficult problems. That'll just happen. Mother necessity will do the right thing. But if you don't have the right people in the room, you're not even going to ask the right questions to to look at the interesting problems, much less find the right solutions. That's Mm -hmm. the thing I worry about. I worry about is whether we're going to get the right people in the room five, 10, 20 years from now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, taking a step back from the 10 year olds, are there things that you're doing or looking to do with OMCS program to, you know, as an example, kind of incorporate coursework or classes around ethics in particular, or, you know, humanities, you know, more broadly, social sciences more broadly? Is that already in place or is it a direction you're looking at? Do you think that's important? It is in place and it is happening. So we have been developing courses at the graduate level for this. But I think even more importantly, we've been doing it at the undergraduate level. So Georgia Tech for decades, like over 20 something years, has always has required what we call an ethics course as a part of the Bachelor's of Science in Computer Science. Uh, mm-hmm. That It's called an ethics course. It's actually more of a professionalism course, uh, which I actually think is somewhat more important. In fact, I don't tend to talk about ethics. Uh, I talk about responsibility. One of my goals is for Georgia Tech to be number one in responsible computing. And I think responsible computing includes ethics, but it includes professionalism. It just includes thinking about the consequences of what you do and taking ownership of those of those consequences so that you can build systems that are more robust and ultimately better. So why am I bringing that up? Because this notion of responsibility, which has been built in again into coursework we've had at the undergraduate level for decades now, we have made some significant revisions to them over the years and are in, in the middle of doing something that I actually think is quite important. So I'll take a second to tell you about it. So the first thing is we had this class it's actually the first class I ever taught at Georgia Tech was around this notion of professionalism and ethics. Uh, I just taught it once, but it was a, a great introduction to uh, teaching and computing for me. We have expanded that. So there's a focus on computing. There's a focus on robotics. There's a focus on privacy. There's a focus on data. There's all these different options you can do as kind of contexts, because that's what we do. We do contextualized learning at Tech. The sort of context you could use to think about uh, responsibility, ethics, and, and professionalism. So this year, we updated our curriculum because what was happening is people would take that course and it'd be the last course they take. And what's the point of waiting until the very last thing you do to start thinking about ethics? One, that's a very strong signal about how this isn't actually that important. And you have vague memories of being a senior. You know what this is like. Your mind's somewhere else. You're you're doing other things. What we did is we decided it's not only going to be a required course, it is a prerequisite for our junior design sequence. So Mm -hmm. we have a year-long junior design course. One semester is all about design and the other semester is about implementation. It's a group project. You learn all kinds of things. I won't go into details. We learn all kinds of things about how to build systems. Starting next year, the requirement for the ethics course, one of the ethics professionalism responsibility courses, will be to be a prerequisite for that. So before you can get through junior design, you're going to have to have already thought hard about this. Not your first semester, because you don't know enough to have context to realize what, what's possible but not to your last semester when you wish you had had that context in order to think about the things you're doing. But halfway through, you've got enough background. We're now going to make you think about these things. You're going to be using it when you do design and sort of start asking these right questions about implications and responsibilities of the systems you're building and potentially deploying. And then using that before you take machine learning, before you take intro to AI, before you take uh, advanced cybersecurity, all of these things that you're going to be doing 
you will be thinking about very early on in the career. And the idea is to integrate this in. And I think that without integrating it into the curriculum, you don't, you neither send the signal that it's important, but you also don't give people the opportunity to put it in practice in an academic environment where you can actually explore. So that's what we're spending all of our energy on. It's about responsibility, Mm -hmm. um, respect to computing, broadly speaking. And do you find that pushing that forward changes the conversations that are happening in the later coursework and project work so that some of these issues are recurring in specialty courses as opposed to just in the responsibility course? So that's the idea. I mean, you know, ask me in five or 10 years when we have enough data to be sure. But even for the people who have done this stuff earlier, you definitely see it happening. And the students claim at least this is what they want. So I think they'll be engaged in having those conversations. The current generation, I think, thinks about these things very differently from even the, you know, half generation before sort of thinks about the responsibility. Our entire curriculum is designed around this idea that if we can give you a proper context by the time you get to be a junior or senior, you are situated in such a way that you can ask interesting questions and do interesting work. Well, responsibility, professionalism has to be a part of that, or otherwise you're saying it's it's not an important context for doing interesting things. So you're taking a machine learning course and you're dealing with data and supervised learning or reinforcement or whatever it is you're doing in the machine learning course. And you haven't yet thought about the implications of data and privacy and how things can get how things can get used. Well, either I'm gonna have to teach you that in machine learning, or you're just not gonna think about it until it's too late. So my expectation is that if I know that by the time you take the intro AI course from me, that you have had this experience, then I can integrate it into the assignments. I can integrate it into the discussions because I don't have to teach it to you for two or three weeks before we can get into the other stuff that I'm doing. And so we'll actually have the side effect, I hope, of allowing faculty to think about how what they're teaching, what they're doing, their passion is impacted by these notions of responsibility without having the pressure of being a philosopher who understands ethics and trying to teach it from scratch to a bunch of students. And even if the faculty don't particularly want to do it, I'm hoping that by the way that we teach this, the students will bring it up themselves and the conversation will naturally lead to a better curricular and academic outcome. Yes, I'm very optimistic that this is the right thing and that ultimately this is what everyone will be doing and it'll just be kind of built in. And 20 years from now, people won't even be able to imagine a time when we weren't doing that. Mm -hmm. Awesome, awesome. Well, you know, throughout your talk, you've raised a, a, a ton of issues, asked a lot of questions for which we don't have good answers. Did you kind of wrap things up with any, you know, we should do prescriptive uh, next step for folks, or is that an exercise left to the observer? Well, it's an exercise left to the, to the observer, but I will tell you the thing that I did leave with, and, and I think this is, this is true. Certainly, it's true of me. In the end, I'm optimistic. I really think that we're living in difficult times, um, but then when have we not been living in difficult times? For the field, for machine learning and AI and computing, actually, generally speaking, we are living in difficult times. We are having to mature and wrestle with the fact that the things that we're doing are actually impacting the world, and it can go very wrong. But the point is not that there's a horrible future in front of us that we have to avoid. It's that there's a wonderful future in front of us that we have to embrace and walk down that path as quickly as possible. So I come out of the the whole experience, and not just from a narrative point of view, but I genuinely believe this, thinking that we're going to end up in a good place. There's going to be some bumps and there's going to be some mistakes, but we're going to be okay. And I think that we're going to make the right decisions at least in trying to think about these problems, whether or not we make the right decisions every day about whether to deploy this or whether to set Lambda or Gamma to 0.7 or 0.4. 
we're going to do the right thing. And at least I'm hopeful for it. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Charles, it was great catching up with you. I uh, hope we did not steal all of your thunder. You should definitely check out Charles's talk. I certainly will. But, you know, once again, it is always uh, a pleasure to catch up with you. Yeah, it's fun. Let's uh, let's not wait another 440 episodes to do this again. <laughs> for sure, for sure. All right. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.